Bing bong. I am live with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast, where I've got a very special guest in the waiting room, Samson Mao, who you guys have all heard of. But we're going to go over essentially Bitcoin nation state adoption, the effects of the SEC, ETF filings, views on Bitcoin adoption by region, and a lot more great topics. But first, big shout out to my sponsor, PlebLab. So PlebLab is uh, the best hacking space, uh, co-working space in uh, the country. And they're down in Austin, Texas, the Bitcoin Mecca. So if you have a chance to go down and visit in Austin, be sure to check out PlebLab. They've got even a Nomad Pass if you're not in the Austin area and would like to you know, get access to their internal communications and maybe some of the other things that they got, on, got going on and a lot of other private events. Also, uh, Bitblock Boom, they're having a startup day. So if you're going to be in town for Bitblock Boom, come a couple days early. They're going to have a startup day starting on Monday, the 21st and the 22nd. Uh, people will give, be giving pitches. They'll be doing some panels and other things like that. So you can purchase a ticket at pleblab.com. And if you're going to Bitbox Boom, use promo code Green Candle. I'll give you 10% off and you can save that 10% uh, to stack some more sats. So be sure to do that. All right. Uh, and then lastly, if you're listening to this on YouTube, please hit that like and subscribe button. It de definitely helps spread the word of the state of Bitcoin. So all the support is greatly appreciated. Now, enough of me blabbing. Let's bring Samson up. Samson, how you doing, man? I'm good. Thanks, Brandon, for having me on. All right. So, Samson, uh, you know, you're, you're, you've been everywhere. You're, you're on a lot of panels, a lot of talking about um you know, various topics, mo mostly Bitcoin adoption these days, it seems at, at a lot of conferences. But let's bring it back. Uh, so kind of how did you get involved into the, the Bitcoin space? And uh, yeah, how did you get to where you're at today? So I guess um, my official foray into Bitcoin is uh, as uh, the COO of BTC China. I joined them first as an advisor and then I moved into the COO role. So my background is running a cryptocurrency exchange and uh, mining pool. And yeah, I think... Uh, that was really what got me deep into deeper into Bitcoin. I read about Bitcoin before, but that was really the starting point of um, actually doing something in the space. Yeah, that's great stuff. And then, uh, you know, that now it seems like you're kind of all over the place and you're you're meeting with great politicians and every everything like that. You're even rocking out at Satoshi Rakamoto. So, uh, you know, I, I saw you up there uh, playing a little bit of the bass guitar. So, you know, what, what was that like? You know, what's kind of the experience that you've been when you go to these conferences and kind of, uh, you know, interact with a bunch of different Bitcoiners all over the place? Uh, I think that was Miami, right? So Knut yeah, was on okay. bass. I was on guitar and uh, Plud Music was on guitar. That was fun. It was fun. Lightning Ventures put that on and it's uh, always fun. Yeah, it's always fun stuff. So, but you did start off at, at Blockstream if, if I'm if I'm uh if I'm correct. So, uh, we we talked about a little bit that, about this on pre-show, but um I kind of want to dive into to Liquid first before we kind of get into nation state adoption and other things like that. So, um, you know, you guys kind of put out liquid. I didn't even know when, but I feel like it was a little bit before, you know, the lightning network kind of gained popularity. Um, so, you know, in your eyes, well, one, can you explain kind of what liquid is and like the purpose of it? And then I'll, I'll ask a follow up. Sure. So liquid is a Bitcoin sidechain. It's a federated sidechain and it has a lot of interesting properties. So uh, because it is not done on the base layer, we can tweak the the variables of Bitcoin in some way. So they, there are faster block times in Liquid. We also have confidential transactions and you can issue assets in Liquid too. So if you think of Bitcoin, 
it's just uh, one asset, it's BTC. But Liquid, is, uh, Liquid has a flag for other asset types. So you can have um, Liquid USDT or Tether. You can have a Canadian dollar stablecoin from Bull Bitcoin. Um, you can have even a game currency like the INF token from Infinite Fleet. But it's just a, a blockchain that can have multiple types of assets. And because of the property of confidential transactions, as people transact on the Liquid network, you can't really tell what they're sending. So a transaction could be Bitcoin or Liquid Bitcoin, or it could be Tether, or it could be INF, but there's no way to see that. So it is a federation, so there's an element of trust there. You have to trust that the federation maintains the operations, but they are effectively like a common carrier. Because of confidential transactions, they can't really see what's going on in the network, and they can't censor any transactions either. So it's a very interesting tech, and I think people are starting to pay more attention to it because the recent fee spike on main chain Bitcoin showed that Lightning can be brittle. So it, you'll have forced channel closes, or it'll be very prohibitive to open a channel or rebalance an existing Lightning channel. So it goes to show that Blockstream had a lot of foresight in building these two technologies. So Lightning development first really began at Blockstream in um, 2015. And Liquid, probably the genesis of that was even earlier, but I think early development started on that in 2014. So you can see both of these technologies kind of work in tandem, and both of them were started at Blockstream. So Adam Back and everyone there has a lot of foresight into what is needed to bring Bitcoin to a planetary level of transaction volume. So then why, why do you feel that, uh, you know, I mean, like you said, it, because the fee is, is kind of going up and, and people are getting a little bit worried about that when it comes to, you know, things on, you know, main change transactions, it seems like layer twos are kind of the new buzz, right? I mean, it seems like everybody's kind of building on lightning, but there hasn't been really a lot of talk on, on building on liquid or kind of expanding the use case of liquid or even using it back and forth, it seems. Or at least maybe I'm just just ignorant and I'm missing a lot of it. So why do you think that, uh, you know, maybe there's been more of an explosion when it comes to, to lightning development opposed to um, just that liquid, uh, you know, the liquid development? Well, I think there's a few factors. So for liquid, it the original use case was uh, inter-exchange settlement. So the backbone of the federation are big cryptocurrency exchanges like Bitfinex, BitMEX, and others. But um the main original use case that we were pushing was moving Bitcoin quickly from exchange to exchange and then stable coins from exchange to exchange. So Tether is issued there too. But it's a way for you to uh, take advantage of arbitrage opportunities or not have to deal with uh, block times because Liquid has one minute block. So you're certain that within two minutes, you'll have full settlement finality, moving coins from one exchange to another. So you can shore up a position if you're margin called, or you can execute a trade very quickly with that finality. So given that Liquid was mainly used by traders initially, it has a different uh, adoption curve and an audience, right? Lightning was more for microtransactions, paying for your coffee or paying for small things or tipping. So that gains a bigger user base more immediately, and it grew a lot faster too. But I think um, the amount of Bitcoin pegged into Lightning that is publicly known now is about 5,600 coins. And Liquid, I think, is upwards of 3,000. So they're both growing. And I think we're seeing a lot more transactions on Liquid these days simply because people are starting to understand that you need 
you need another layer, not just lightning, because lightning can slow down when the main chain is clogged, right? So if you need to rebalance the channel, you can't really do that with a Bitcoin main chain if the main chain itself is clogged. So you need that intermediary, which is liquid. So it seems like, you know, with the liquid, with the growing uh, aspect of the Lightning Network, essentially like liquid can almost grow in tandem and kind of help help the growth of the Lightning Network. Am I kind of understanding that correctly? Yeah, I think there are definitely two technologies that support one another. Um, the other dimension, I think, too, that factors into liquid slower growth is that liquid like Bitcoin is not some tech that people can hack on easily. It is meant to be core infrastructure and you need to have, uh, you know, Bitcoin experience to build on top of liquid, at least initially. It's getting a bit easier now with things like Miniscript coming into the coming into the spotlight. And that makes it a lot easier to do things with liquid and with Bitcoin. But back in the day, like in 2015 and onwards, you have to be basically a Bitcoin core developer to do much on liquid at that time. Whereas with Lightning, it's more akin to you know, the Ethereum's and other things like that. You can build on JavaScript and whatnot or Go, and it's more easy to hack on because it's not base, a, a base protocol that is really hard to change. So I think that factors into developer adoption, but there are a lot of companies building on Liquid. Um, Bullpump Ventures, they're behind Fuji USD or Fuji Money. Um, that's a Bitcoin-backed stablecoin. They're doing a lot of heavy lifting. There's TDEX as well. And that's a decentralized exchange that's built on Liquid. Uh, you have SideSwap as well. There's a lot, a lot of companies. Also, Jan3, my company, we're building on Liquid as well, um, trying to create a Bitcoin wallet that is native Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin Layer 2 and for USDT on Liquid. So there's actually a lot of people building on Liquid, but it's not as big as Lightning, I think, because it's just easier to build on Lightning. I got you. And that makes a lot of sense. But I mean, I, I'm going to look for, for more development on Liquid now that you're, you're bringing it up, because it definitely seems like, you know, one can help the other. And like, there is a need for more, I guess, Liquid development. It's just maybe not as, I guess, uh, I guess, as mainstream, right? I mean, we're not seeing like Liquid developers or like Liquid developer meetups, like that kind of stuff, right? It seems like Lightning and that is kind of I guess almost a new wave in a sense, um, but I mean, it definitely seems like there there could be a way. But you mentioned something about there is some aspect of trust. So can you dive a little bit deeper into that as to what you mean with like the aspect of trust and you know where you know I guess things could potentially go wrong in this scenario? Right. So Liquid is a federation um, similar to Fedi, but the difference is the that is the Liquid Federation is a set, a, a fixed number of uh, members and the functionaries are a subset of those. And the functionaries are the people that are operating the, um, the, 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 the functionary box or the miner of the net Liquid Network, if you will. But that's really a, a black box. They can't censor or modify transactions or do anything. They're just operating this box in their data centers. But because they are exchanges and Bitcoin companies, it's a lot more robust than say a Fediment Federation because they're gonna be up 100% of the time. Um, whereas with Fedi, you might get a few of your friends, maybe someone is running something in a, a Fedi node in a data center, but maybe the other guys are just running something in their basement. So you don't really know exactly how much uptime and reliability you have. And you also have the risk that they might disappear. Like you might lose your friends one day and then 
that federation is gone. There's always that possibility, whereas Liquid is a, a federation of businesses and companies. So they have more resilience in that dimension. But um, the trust is really that the, they don't collude, the federation doesn't collude to attack the peg. So they would need a, a majority, I think 15 of them, to attack uh, the peg in order to steal the coins that are pegged in. But even then, there is the concept of the um, peg out authorization key system. So you have to be a Liquid member to pull Bitcoin out of the Federation. And as a user of Liquid, what you do is you peg out through one of the other members of the Federation. But it's a security measure because I think you've seen time and time again in the news that a lot of DeFi protocols and bridges always get attacked and the peg is a weak point there, right? Where they're bridging to some other chain or some other asset. And that just gets drained and you know the thing collapses. But because Liquid, I think, foresaw the risk there, there is that system of uh, peg out authorization. So you can only peg out to an existing member. And this is a whitelist. So you can't just come in as an external attacker and drain the network. Um, it, you'd have to join the Federation and get the key. But then, of course, then you know who you are and there is a, a procedure to join the Federation. So in a way, it protects it from bad actors and protects the security of the network. Yeah, that's a great breakdown. I really appreciate uh, you taking a dive into that. But yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like there's a lot of there was a lot of foresight in it. So there is some 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 level of trust. But as you kind of lined out, it it seems like a lot of things have to go one way in order for you know that trust to I guess be broken in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, which is great in, in a sense to, to for the user experience and everything like that as well. But I want to start taking a dive into nation state adoption, right? I mean, I kind of alluded to it at the beginning of the talk. You know, you, um, you know, were with a member of uh, the Indonesian government at uh, a talk for uh, Bitcoin Miami this year. You know, you've kind of, uh, you know, you seem to get into a lot of rooms where, you know, government officials are, are speaking and things like that. So uh, as you see... Um, you know, Bitcoin nation state adoption kind of, I guess, running through, uh, obviously it's like kind of a slow process, but I want, I'll give you the floor here. Just give you, if you want to give like a general overview as to, you know, what you're kind of hearing in these rooms and like kind of the viewpoint when it comes to Bitcoin and nation state adoption. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Indonesia is a very interesting one. Um, I think you're referring to Governor Ridwan Kamel. He's the governor of West Java in Indonesia. And uh, from what I'm hearing, he's likely going to be either the next vice president or president of Indonesia. So um, these are very interesting times. And as you said, we do, we as in Jan 3, we get uh, invited to meet with uh, heads of state and government officials all around the world. So we do get to have our shot at orange pilling them. it will take some time, I think. Oftentimes people think it's going to be very fast. You'll have another El Salvador, snap your fingers and they'll do a Bitcoin law and we're done. But I think El Salvador is a bit of an outlier because the president was a Bitcoiner before he became president. So you you have that massive advantage in understanding and knowledge of Bitcoin. Whereas for a lot of other heads of state, you have to take them through the process from, from zero at some points or even worse because they have a... a misformed opinion about Bitcoin in some way. So it's a lot of work and a lot of education, I would say. But overall, the sentiment I'm seeing is there's a massive amount of interest from governments for 
finding a way to integrate a Bitcoin strategy into their country and their economy. And we try to speed that up by um, helping them further understand how to use Bitcoin. So one of the uh, big advantages advantages we have is that uh, Bitcoin can transform energy into money. And a lot of countries that are in the global south or developing still have actually a lot of energy, but they might be stranded. In the case of Indonesia, they have a massive amount of geo geothermal potential. I think there's the second highest in the world. They have a massive amount of hydropower and other, other renewables too. But they can't really do anything with that because you can't put it into a barrel and ship it to the US or Canada. You have to consume it. But with the advent of Bitcoin, you can now consume it, turn it into Bitcoin and sell the Bitcoin. So what I like to do is tell them, you don't need to keep Bitcoin if you don't want to. I think it'd be a mistake not to, but you could just mine the Bitcoin, sell it all and build your roads, airports, uh, bridges, whatever, hospitals. And I think that gets them thinking about the potential for Bitcoin to be incredibly transformative to their economy. And it, I think more and more politicians are starting to understand that, especially because Bitcoin is becoming a hotter and hotter topic. Like you've seen um, at Miami, um, RFK was speaking about it and he delivered an excellent speech and he seems to have a very deep understanding. But more and more politicians around the world are starting to talk about Bitcoin as part of their campaign platforms. Yeah, it definitely seems to be the case, right? I mean, we had, uh, what, like three different political uh, candidates, RFK obviously being our presidential candidates in the United States, uh, RFK being the biggest name, but Vivek as well. And then I believe an independent candidate, and I, I've, the name's escaping me right now, so I apologize. But, you know, it definitely seems like it's going to be something that's not only like, you know, on the ballot globally, but it may be, uh, you know, politicians in the United States as well. But, you know, what I think is interesting is you brought up like mining and the energy aspect of things as to, you know, kind of the reason that the where the light bulb kind of goes off for these politicians. Is, is that where you kind of, I guess, see more of the selling point opposed to maybe some of the hard money principles? Because, you know, as, as kind of like an outsider looking in, it seems like a lot of these countries that are, you know, dealing with their fiat currencies, suffering massive amounts of inflation, you know, you think, you know, Argentina, Turkey, some of these other like countries that you've seen, you know, the devaluation of their currency just, you know, plummet um, in recent uh, months, that that would be kind of the selling point. But you're, you're kind of saying otherwise, is that kind of is that kind of, a, a, I guess, aligning with, uh, I, I guess, what I'm lining out here? So I would say money is easier to understand immediately, versus the concept of hard money, you kind of you need to go down the rabbit hole a bit and you have to have a, a deeper understanding of the fundamentals of money before you appreciate hard money. Whereas money on the table that you're just passing up because you're not taking it is a much easy, much more easily digestible concept. And it helps to align incentives far more quickly than taking them through the understanding. I think one will lead to the other. It's sort of like the the, the joke that we say where we came in for the, the gains and we stayed for the, the sound money and the hope, right? But if you get them mining Bitcoin just to get Bitcoin, sell it and do other things, they'll eventually start to understand the other properties of Bitcoin. But I, I just see it as a far easier onboarding mechanism than taking them through. But of course, we will go there. It's just uh, you have to prioritize your pitch, right? Oftentimes, you have uh, 30 minutes or an hour and you have to cram as much 
orange pilling into that session, but at a digestible rate where you're not, you know, overwhelming them with details and complexity. So actually we don't even talk about the technology. We only talk about money. Usually we don't talk about the blockchain and um, transactions and layer twos or anything like that. We keep it very digestible, very high level and very much focused on those incentives for them to tap into Bitcoin. Yeah. And so like, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense, but do you ever have like, you know, after you have this 30 minutes to an hour with a politician or, you know, some, somebody kind of in that room or in that realm, um, do you ever have them like, I guess, follow up, you know, after, after the fact, maybe asking for a little bit deeper of questions or do they just kind of, you know, they, they get the energy aspect of things and they see like, okay, that's where their mind starts turning is turning energy into, you know, basically money in a sense, and that can help fund, you know, development as you kind of lined out earlier. Um, or do they, uh, you know, I mean, it seems like everything in politics moves kind of slow. So maybe, you know, you meet with a politician, then like six months later, they reach back out. But uh, do you see them any any desire to kind of, I guess, dig a little bit deeper? Yeah, I think um, they do reach back out sometimes, but oftentimes it's us trying to follow up again. But it's really up to us to move the needle because if you're a head of state and you're the president, you have a lot of other things to deal with at any given time. Like uh, Bitcoin and the economy is one of those things, but they might need to deal with uh, uh, civil unrest or they might need to deal with uh, foreign affairs or, or just the uh, crime. Like in the case of El Salvador, they spend a lot of effort fighting the gangs, right? So there's, you just have to understand that, for us, Bitcoin is 100% of our time, but for them, Bitcoin might be potentially 10%, even if they are fully orange-filled. So you have to take a low tire preference to nation-state Bitcoin adoption too. It's going to happen, and it's up to us to push it along and move it forward. Yeah, and that's a great way to put it. I mean, you 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 lined out the low time preference as well, but you know, in the short term, right? I mean, you are kind of speaking and meeting with a lot of these because of you know Jan three and the great work that you guys are doing there. But in the short term, there is some a, a little bit of a I guess maybe fud around uh, you know Bitcoin and and crypto to a greater extent um, with with the SEC, right? It seems like the SEC is coming at a lot of these uh, you know crypto crypto casinos, so to speak. Um, you know, they're, they're going after Coinbase and like potentially some of these others, uh, Binance, obviously. And then, you know, you've seen the FTX debacle and all these other companies kind of, you know, fall by the wayside. So in a sense, did, what are your is is this FUD ever, ever being brought up? Is this, um, you know, the SEC regulations ever being a talking point or something that, you know, really deters a politician or, you know, somebody kind of in power? away from Bitcoin and even having the conversation? I don't know if it really deters, but we often see a lot of conflation between Bitcoin and crypto, which we nip in the bud and we tell them, you know, Bitcoin is Bitcoin, crypto is crypto. It's very different, but that's probably the bigger hurdle. Um, I, I think the SEC crackdown on crypto casinos is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you want to do it, go ahead. But there are repercussions, right? You can't just list un unregistered securities. And a lot of these crypto projects are unregistered securities and they're unregisterable as well. So it's, it's bringing some degree of clarity to the market that Bitcoin is 
is uh, a commodity, it's money, it's decentralized, it's immutable, but everything else, you know, they can go after them. They can say this is a security and it's obviously a security. If you can't see that, then you're just in denial. But these things are companies, even if they say they're a Swiss foundation, they're obviously managing a project for making money and for attracting investment. Otherwise, they wouldn't do all the things they do. So I think the SEC actions are providing a certain degree of clarity. And that is a good thing because as countries look towards Bitcoin adoption, that sort of solidifies and amplifies our messaging that Bitcoin is Bitcoin, everything else is a security. And you can be welcoming of securities if you want. So you can have um, digital securities laws that that would allow these projects to register as a security. So El Salvador, ahead of um, doing their volcano bonds, if they do that, they put out the um, digital securities law and that would allow projects in the crypto space to register and just say, you know, you're, I'm a security, I'm raising capital and formalize that process instead of trying to live in that gray area and say you're decentralized and not a security. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, you brought it up. So let, let's dive into a little bit uh, as well. The, the volcano bonds, right? I mean, you are the, the architect of the volcano bonds. So, um, you know, when it comes to adoption and, you know, you brought up mining and other things like that as well. Um, are, you know, people kind of looking at the, the what, what El Salvador is doing? Like, are other countries kind of keeping a closer eye as to, you know, one, the volcano bonds, like kind of how, you know, things were going with like the Chivo wallet and other things like that. Um, and, you know, maybe even like the tourism and kind of the other, you know, side effects um, that were positive that kind of came from the adoption of Bitcoin. Right. So I don't know too much about what's happening with the volcano bonds right now. I helped design a Bitcoin bond structure, um, which I think is different than a volcano bond. It's a, a superstructure of uh, revenue generating activity combined with some Bitcoin holdings. And the volcano bond is a subset of that where you're doing mining with geothermal power. Um, but um, I saw an article in Forbes that said the new project Volcano Energy fulfills President Bukele's vision of the volcano bond. So I'm not really sure how to interpret that, but maybe that is uh, a replacement or it's a first step and they will do it later. But what we are seeing is there are other countries interested in the concept of a Bitcoin bond. So that superstructure of Bitcoin holdings plus a revenue generating activity. So in the case of Costa Rica, they are interested to do something potentially like a hydro bond, tapping into their hydropower. Also Ecuador as well. We've been talking to some government people there and they're interested in doing it based on hydropower as well. Um, I mean, Indonesia could do it. They could do volcano and hydro bonds because they have both. Uh, but this, this whole idea of creating sovereign debt backed by Bitcoin is still a very interesting thing. And there's still a lot of interest around that. We just have to move that forward and, help them structure these offerings. But um, it is a way for countries to get out of debt because the key here is you have dollar denominated debt, but you, you're backing it with something harder that will appreciate against the dollar. And that's really the only way to get out of the debt spiral because if you just keep borrowing more money to service debt, you'll be in debt forever. So I, I see many countries looking at this as an opportunity to break that cycle. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. Um, you know, and it, it definitely seems like, you know, that's kind of like, I, I guess, the viewpoint, right? I mean, like, uh, other countries are probably looking at, you know, obviously, that, like I said, the, the, the US kind of controlling the dollar and, you know, the interest rate hikes and other other things like that, where, you know, they're kind of, uh, almost in a sense, destroying the offshore dollar market. So, um, you know, do you kind of, I guess, get that sense where, you know, because the US is, you know, basically pulling the strings here that that other countries are, I don't know if it's like getting annoyed, frustrated, I don't I don't know, I guess the best way to put it, but, you know, are kind of, uh, I guess, more open to the conversation of an alternative, just because of, you know, the US kind of having all this power and having it for some time. Um, and, you know, obviously, since 1971, having the global reserve currency that, you know, maybe it, it's time for a change or, or something along those lines. Well, I think it is a trend and we're seeing that emerge with the, the BRICS and them trying to create their own own currency as well. But I've seen other heads of state speak out about, you know, finding a way out of the old systems. So we just have to reach them. I think there was a president in Africa, I forgot which country, but he was posting something um, saying that they need to figure a way out of uh, debt spiral right? and getting out of that debt slavery. So we just have to reach out and talk to them about Bitcoin and hopefully the incentives will align themselves and they'll understand it. But uh, I would say the world is moving towards de-dollarization. A lot of trade is now shifting to other currencies, settlement in other currencies like the Chinese yuan and potentially others. But the, yeah, I, I'd say it's, it's going to shift and they might settle on some interim settlement currencies. Maybe it's the Chinese yuan, maybe it's something else. But ultimately, they're going to move towards Bitcoin because any fiat money is still subject to the same risks as using the U.S. dollar. You can store your your reserve currency that you accumulate in that at the central bank of the issuer, but it's an IOU note that can be cut at any given time. Whereas with Bitcoin, you can keep it yourself and custody it yourself and nobody can prevent you from accessing and transacting in it. So everything is a mid-step towards hyper-Bitcoinization. They're all going to use Bitcoin eventually. Um, I think one of the things that we try to do at Jan3 is smooth that transition over. So our thesis is that within the next five to 10 years, we will reach hyper-Bitcoinization just because everything else is blowing up and failing. But it would be more beneficial to the people of the world, uh, citizens of these countries, if they had parallel tracks going into that shift because if you have a demonetization event or hyperinflation event and you don't have a parallel track of Bitcoin in addition to Argentinian pesos or Turkish lira, then you're going to have a mass exodus of people trying to get out of that currency. And that's going to cause a lot of chaos. And if you look at history, all of these demonetization events usually lead to a lot of human suffering and potentially death. So the best case scenario is countries start to adopt Bitcoin and they don't need to just ditch their fiat currency, they can have both of them running in parallel. So you can have that slow transition because as we know, getting into Bitcoin is not simple, right? You need to understand a few things. You need to understand some basic IT security, um, how to secure your devices. You need to understand how to back up your seed phrase and how to make a transaction. But for us, it's like breathing the air <laughs> or drinking water. But for many people, they have no idea. And I think there's... Um, a learning curve still. So we want to see if we can ease that transition into a hyper-Bitcoinized world. 
Yeah. And I mean, it definitely took, took a little bit of everybody, you know, everybody listening, you know, we probably have various levels of degrees of a Bitcoiner, I guess, so to speak, where, you know, when you first get in, you, you kind of forget like how, I guess, almost programmed you were in a sense of like, you know, this is just the way things are, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, the, the fiat kind of world that we lived in, the, the clown world as Bitcoin Twitter loves to put it as well. Um, so, I mean, it takes some time to get that, that uh, I guess, out of that space in a sense. And especially, you know, for politicians who kind of, you know, I guess we're, we're almost raised in their career path uh, in that world to kind of, you know, maybe question it or, or go along those lines. So I, but yeah. I want to get into, um, you know, some, some more of like, I guess, breaking down of the regions, right? I mean, we've seen obviously El Salvador, um, Central African Republic, I believe also made Bitcoin legal tender. Um, I, I haven't heard any really updates since then, but uh, I want to hear like basically your uh, your thoughts on, you know, by region, right? And the, the three regions that I really want to focus on are, you know, Latin America, uh, Asia, and Africa. I know obviously Asia and Africa are very huge and, and Latin America is a little bit, you know, uh, a little bit smaller, but um, let's start at Latin America. Obviously, we've had El Salvador, um, uh, you know, develop or make Bitcoin legal tender. We have Argentina that's making a lot of headlines where, you know, their, their currency is kind of inflated. So how do you see, uh, I guess, the conversation going in Latin America and kind of adoption uh, starting there? Right. So the focus of Jan 3 is largely on Latin America because we see it as the ripest area or region for Bitcoin adoption. And that's because of a number of factors. You have a lot of very developed political systems. You have a, a relatively stable uh, system of governance and politics. Um, you have El Salvador anchoring Bitcoin adoption. And you also have a strong need in some parts of LATAM for, uh, for Bitcoin too, because uh, Venezuela, Argentina, they're facing massive amounts of inflation at this time and their currencies are devaluing. So if you add up all those things, then it's, it looks very attractive. Also, you have to take into account the, the political turnover. So within the next five years, I think most countries in LATAM are going to have a new prime minister or president. So with that change comes a lot of opportunity because they might bring in fresh blood, um, younger candidates that are more in tune, or they might be candidates that we're already in touch with and have con contacts with. So um, it's hard to get in touch with sitting presidents and prime ministers. But if you meet them before, you have a higher probability of um, orange pilling them post fact after they're elected. So there's just a lot of opportunity in LATAM, I think, at this time. And that's really our focus. And if you look at some of the other regions in LATAM, they can adopt Bitcoin very easily. So I always bring up the, the these two, um, Guatemala and Panama. They don't need a Bitcoin law, actually. They can just say, the next presidents can just say, we accept Bitcoin. So in the case of Guatemala, they have a law called divisas, which is they recognize any foreign currency that, and that can be used as money in the country. And of course, as I mentioned, with El Salvador anchoring Bitcoin adoption in the region, Bitcoin is a foreign currency. It's the currency of El Salvador. Uh, in the case of Panama, they have no central bank, so they can use any money they see fit in Panama. So the next president just needs to say, well, we accept Bitcoin. We're a Bitcoin country and you're done. No legal change necessary. But uh, the other beautiful thing about LATAM is that there's a lot of energy 
and their energy infrastructure is more developed than a lot of other places in the world. So you do have excess energy available and that leads to Bitcoin mining. Whereas in other places like Africa, they're more stressed on energy. Like I remember, I, I don't remember, but the, the Central, Central African Republic tried to do something with Bitcoin and they tried to pass a Bitcoin law. They flip-flopped on that a few times, but um, there was a delegation there. Uh, my friend Seb uh, went there and led that. But uh, you know, his observation was there's not a lot of uh, energy infrastructure outside of the capital city. Most of the country doesn't have electricity. So it's not that conductive for Bitcoin mining because Bitcoin mining is energy intensive. But yeah, like my point is uh, LATAM for us in our analysis is the best region to focus on at this time. But not, that's not to say other regions are not important, but for us to uh, dedicate resources and energy, that's probably the best use of our time. But uh, we do keep in contact with other regions. So if you want to move on, like we can talk more about Africa. Africa, I think the focus should be largely on grassroots adoption um, because the political and governance systems are not as developed and stable. So we should just focus on encouraging more things like uh, Bitcoin Akasi and other people trying to boot up uh, circular economies through merchant adoption. And I think there are a lot of uh, young people in Africa that are already familiar with Bitcoin and they're using Bitcoin as a savings technology to avoid inflation and having to deal with the, the fiat currencies. So that I think is my take on Africa that we should push more grassroots adoption at the, at the bottom level. All right. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that makes a lot of sense as well. Right. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of, you know, I, I don't know if about, I guess, development kind of going on when, when it comes to like nation state things, but I mean, obviously we've had, there's Bitcoin Africa, that conference is going on. It seems like there's a lot of push for the education aspect of that in, in Africa, obviously there's adopting Bitcoin in uh, El Salvador and some other conferences in LATAM as well. But um, you know, it definitely seems like there's kind of the growing push you know, for the use of the Lightning Network and kind of the transaction, the grassroots things in Africa, at least from my perspective as an outsider looking in where I'm just kind of uh, floating it on the internet and seeing that. Yeah, we forgot to talk about Asia. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just about to, I was just about to transition to that. So yeah, let's dive into it. You, you brought it up, so let's go. Yeah, so Asia is an interesting beast. You have certain countries that are hostile. So China is somewhat hostile, but that seems to be changing because now Hong Kong is embracing um, Bitcoin and unfortunately crypto. So they're trying to attract all these companies to open bank accounts. And there has been a mandate to facilitate that and expedite account opening for Bitcoin and crypto companies. So that seems to be a change. I don't think that they can do that sort of welcome in China itself, but Hong Kong is a, a part of China now. So them opening up means that there is a signal from Beijing that it's okay to do so. Um, and I think that's very interesting because it's a, it's a novel way for China to adopt Bitcoin because people in China can go to Hong Kong, open up accounts and potentially access this. Um, and I think Indonesia is very interesting too, because as we talked about before, uh, if Ridwan Kamil is uh, a VP or president in the future, he seems to have a, a good fundamental understanding of the basics of Bitcoin, especially on mining. That could lead to Indonesia being uh, 
a big adopter of Bitcoin, and that's 270 million people. But I think the more interesting thing about Indonesia is the trajectory, because if you look at what's happened in the past, they've um, blocked uh, Bitcoin from being used as a payment mechanism. And if you go back in history and look at China, that was actually the first um, the first leg of the crackdown. So at BTC China, we had a, an app called JustPay, and that was meant for payments. And um, that was the first thing that we had to turn off during the crackdowns. So we had to stop onboarding merchants and stop uh, helping them accept Bitcoin as payments. But then if you look at the progression, it starts with cracking down on payments and then shutting down of the exchanges and then cracking down on mining. So it's progressive. And if you look at Indonesia, they've already started that with cracking down on the payments, right? Recently, there's another article coming out um, from uh, a government official connected to Bali saying they don't want, they're, they're going to put you in jail if you, or fine you if you pay with Bitcoin. But we'll see if they enforce that. Um, but um, the next step would be cracking down on an exchange and then mining. But then at this side of the spectrum, you have uh, Ridwan saying, we want mining to come in. So it's a, a very interesting battleground to see where it goes. And I'm hopeful it, hopefully it goes in the right direction. And I, I'm hope, hopeful also that it goes in the right direction because there are Bitcoiners in Indonesia pushing for Bitcoin adoption. So there's a group there. Um, they're doing a Bitcoin conference, the Indonesian Bitcoin conference in Bali. And I'll be going there in October. Jack Dorsey's going there. So hopefully we can steer things better in the right direction and encourage that Bitcoin adoption. But there are other places too that seem to have these Bitcoin movements pushing for Bitcoin adoption. So in Korea too, um, there's a group of Bitcoiners trying to do a Bitcoin only conference. And historically, Korea has been very crypto and shitcoiny, right? You know, Doquan came out of Korea. And I, I think these movements are going to help a lot with the nation state adoption of Bitcoin because the governments are going to have these grassroots communities and people there keeping them honest and keeping them aligned with the Bitcoin ethos. Yeah, I was I was going to ask. I want you to dive into that a little bit a little bit more, right? I mean, we had in El Salvador Bitcoin Beach. It seems like we've had a bunch of different, you know, kind of I guess Bitcoin areas where people are accepting and kind of doing that grassroots movement. You know, Bitcoin Lake. I mean, there's it seems like there's more of these popping up by the day. So, how important would you say those are? Um, when, you know, when it comes to Bitcoin nation state adoption, like are politicians actually? You know, I guess seeing some of these things pop up and kind of keeping a close eye or, you know, is it kind of, uh, you know, depending on the situation? Um, I think they're very important. So I've, I've said it a number of times before. You need both grassroots adoption and top level adoption. The top level adoption is removing barriers to grassroots adoption, right? So if let's take Indonesia as an example, as an example, if they say you can't pay with Bitcoin, that's going to hinder that grassroots movement, right? So you have to engage with the government at some level because we still live in countries and the government still has power. It's cool to say, you know, we'll separate money in the state, but what do you actually do to separate that? You have to engage in some way, right? Or everyone is just using Bitcoin instantly and then they have to accept it. But for the most part, you have to have some plan in place to reach that point. Um, so you do need that top level adoption to facilitate adoption and remove barriers because governments can put you in jail. Um, but you also need that grassroots adoption. And we've seen countries like Central African Republic try to do some adoption without the grassroots support. So when Sebastian went there to the Central African Republic with that delegation, 
he found that there is no grassroots adoption. It was a government initiative. And then they launched SangoCoin after that. And then they flip-flopped on the law. I think they repealed it, put it back in place. But there's just no grassroots movement there. There's no real usage anchoring that Bitcoin adoption. So it doesn't really work. There's no one to keep them honest. So I think we have to encourage more of these movements and more of these little micro economies of Bitcoin in these regions because they're they're a, a they're an example that the governments can look to, go to and learn, interact with them. And they are a proof of concept that Bitcoin can work and it can fuel an economy. So in the case of um, Bitcoin jungle in Costa Rica, the reason that uh, Bitcoin is so prevalent there is because it's hard for foreign nationals to move money into Costa Rican banks. And they're using Bitcoin to do that, to move their money in, to buy properties and pay for services and buy food and live. And that is a very powerful, poignant example of Bitcoin's utility. And it also shows that Bitcoin is a key to prosperity because you have people coming and investing in the country through Bitcoin and powering that economy. There are 400 merchants, I believe, in Bitcoin jungle that take uh, Bitcoin as payment. And the population there is not that big. So it's a, a massive ecosystem on that scale, if you will. And I think the Costa Rican government being able to look at that and see that in their own backyard will help them further understand Bitcoin and the benefits of Bitcoin. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned like kind of like, I guess, the banking system in Costa Rica, right? I mean, it, it obviously that's the, a big use case and the reason why it seems like we need Bitcoin, you know, adoption in, in many countries. But, you know, in the, in the United States now, we're having a lot of these big players, whether it's like BlackRock, Fidelity, kind of filing for an ETF and maybe trying to get get their way into, I guess, the Bitcoin space. Um, so before we kind of dive into like the ETFs and those filings, I want to ask you more about like the banks and in, in other countries, if you have any, you know, I guess, knowledge or anything like that, do you kind of foresee maybe um, some of the banking systems in, you know, different countries, almost kind of similar to the, the choke point 2.0 theory here in the United States, where they're going to cut off, you know, the way to either, you know, purchase Bitcoin or try to, I guess, attack it in that sense? Well, the banks are in a very difficult position. If you disregard Bitcoin for a moment, banking in and of itself is suffering a massive crisis because they have more and more reporting obligations and compliance requirements that are driving up their costs. So onboarding a new customer is actually a massive risk to banks because if uh, there's a problem with that new customer, then they have a risk of fines and other, other penalties. So without Bitcoin, they're already failing because they're effectively being used as a tool to surveil and control the money. And that is effectively breaking down what money is. Money is meant to be free. Money is just information. It's a, it's a global ledger that doesn't really exist anywhere, right? If you break down money at a very fundamental level, it's just people exchanging value and energy with one another. But we have to anchor it to some mechanism in the real world. And Historically, that's been seashells and metal coins and then paper bills and then digital numbers, right? But you're just anchoring that human interaction and human energy into some other medium that you're able to track. But the banks have been tasked de facto with the mission of managing that. 
And it's not a really good mission because they're trying, they're businesses, they're trying to make money somehow. And that makes them do riskier and riskier things. And the cost to onboard people into that system is increasing too. So eventually banks will go away unless money is restored. And the only way to restore money is to adopt Bitcoin. So they have to make a choice at some point. And I'm not sure they'll be able to do that, but they'll need to adopt Bitcoin with open arms and become Bitcoin banks and offer new services. But at the same time, you'll need the legacy infrastructure that is pushing them to surveil the money to give up and just accept Bitcoin as money and you can't monitor and control it anymore. So there's a, a lot of things that have to play out in the end. But in the interim right now, we are seeing banks in the world becoming more accepting of Bitcoin, like in Hong Kong, where the mandate is onboard these and bring them in as customers. And I think that has to do with a realization that the old system is not working because Hong Kong is one of those jurisdictions. It was very open maybe 10 years ago, but they've been slowly tightening up and becoming more and more restrictive on account opening and transactions. Like if you send a wire to pay a vendor, you might get a, a, a phone call or a question asking us, uh, asking you what you're doing with that money, right? And that has to do, I think, largely with the um, Chinese capital controls and attempts to enforce those capital controls through those banks. But at the same time, people are leaving Hong Kong because of those restrictions. And it's not as hot of a jurisdiction to domicile your business, invest money in, and keep your money in. So um, I think a few years back, there's a massive exodus of Hong Kong companies and, and people that have been flooding to Singapore, which has been more receptive and more welcoming of capital. And I believe that you know, whoever is running Hong Kong now is understanding that Hong Kong will not be a financial center of the world if they deny money from being money. And this is why that's happening. So it's an interesting battle right now. It's a tug of war and we'll see where it goes. But ultimately, banks have to adapt and they have to embrace Bitcoin if they want to exist in some form or other. Yeah, that's interesting that you're kind of lining that out, right? Where it's it's almost like businesses kind of control, not, I guess, controlling in a full sense, but going where the incentives lie. And like, we've kind of seen that it seems like over time, especially like here in the US, right? I mean, we've seen like a massive amount of migration over the past couple of years from, you know, states like New York, California, and other things to like Texas and, you know, Florida. But it seems like that's kind of happening globally with businesses as well. Would you kind of, I, I guess, attest to that as, as well, where it's like, you know, if you're going to make things difficult for a certain company, or, you know, a certain industry that obviously is exploding, right, in growth, that, you know, these companies are going to start to shift from, you know, maybe either it's Hong Kong to, to Singapore, or maybe it's even to, you know, something like El Salvador or some other country like that. I mean, people are going to make decisions that make sense. Companies are going to make decisions that make sense. So you have to align your incentives with reality of the world. You might want to surveil money for various reasons. But at the end of the day, if you do that, you're degrading what money is and you're turning it into some bastardized version of itself. And when you compare that to something pristine, immutable and permissionless like Bitcoin, there is just no comparison. So they have to do something. Either they're going to adapt or they're going to die. I love that. I love that. All right. Well, now, well, before we leave, I, I want to ask you about the ETF filings. I you know, alluded to it a little bit earlier, but it seems like everybody and their mother now in the United States is starting to file for a Bitcoin ETF, whether it's spot or some other way, shape or form. 
But uh, yeah, I'll just leave it right there. Like, what do you think, I guess, uh, of these big dogs kind of trying to get in to this Bitcoin space now? I mean, it seems like a lot of other countries, you know, Canada and like a lot of, you know, a few others have had, you know, spotty tips for a while, but the U.S. has always been lagging behind. So, you know, one, why do you think the U.S. is lagging behind? And I guess what's your overall opinion on, you know, these big companies now starting to get in and uh, starting to try to, I guess, reap some of the profits of like maybe a Bitcoin ETF? Well, I think it has to do partially with the SEC crackdown, which brought clarity that Bitcoin is okay. So Michael Saylor said this, um, I think at a conference, I think in the Prague conference. Yeah, I think in Prague. But he was saying, um, if you look, read between the lines of all politicians talking about Bitcoin in Congress and all the regulatory actions from the SEC, it's saying that Bitcoin is okay. Everything else is a security or it's a scam or whatever, but Bitcoin is okay. Bitcoin is fine. So what the SEC is doing is paving the way for BlackRock and Fidelity and everyone else to really understand that Bitcoin is okay and you can build a business and financial products around Bitcoin. And that is exactly what they're doing. They're, that clarity now, I think, is driving BlackRock to move ahead. Maybe they've been planning for a long time and maybe they've been trying to iron out their filing so it's bulletproof. But I would say the timing is either coincidental or perfect, but it's um, a good time for them to come in. And I think the impact on the market is massive because contenders like BlackRock, um, like Fidelity, they sig- there's two things here. One is they signal that Bitcoin is serious and this is institutional grade investment material. And this is why they're moving in. Like BlackRock typically doesn't do, you know, random things. They do serious things. Um, the other part of it is that they open the door for a lot of capital to come into Bitcoin. So a lot of institutional investors, funds, pensions, whatever, they have to run by their current mandates and they can't hold Bitcoin themselves or maybe not even with a custodian, but they can do it with a spot ETF. So that is going to open the door for possibly $10 billion of capital to come in pretty much instantly when they're approved. And that's probably going to have a massive impact on Bitcoin. But it's two things here. It's a double whammy. One is you have BlackRock saying this is an institutional grade asset. Bitcoin is an institutional grade asset. And then you have the floodgates open for all of this capital to come in. Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously the floodgates opening would be you know great for potentially the price action and other things like that. But the, the one worry that I do have about this is like, you know, maybe the, the issuance of paper Bitcoin, because, you know, obviously the, the SEC is going to, is starting to go through some of the regulations and other things like that. But it seems like, you know, in the past few years, we've had obviously, you know, we, we named the FTX and kind of the other scandals that went down. Um, how would this be, I guess, somewhat different in a sense where now that this is a spot ETF and that is kind of, I guess, the, the new avenue, um, you know, how would, I guess, the SEC be able to, I guess, verify that, you know, BlackRock, Fidelity, some of these other big players are not just holding paper Bitcoin? Well, it's much harder to fudge the books as uh, <laughs> an institution like BlackRock than it is for an FTX. So I... I I read, I watched a podcast yesterday or a clip. I think it was uh, Greg Foss and I forgot the name of the guy, but he, he did the uh, EBIT ETF in Canada. And he was saying that BlackRock has um, a surveillance agreement with Coinbase. 
which should fulfill that regulatory requirement that they have surveillance over a large market. And they feed that into some mechanism. I can't, I, I can't explain it as well as he did, but it feeds into a NASDAQ monitoring system for surveillance. So he, his theory is that BlackRock has all of this mechanism figured out and that should satisfy the SEC's requirement for approving that. So I think it's possible that BlackRock could be the first. Nice. Yeah, that's that's great stuff. And it seems like it's kind of moving that way. But your time is valuable and you've been uh, very generous to come on the podcast. So I really appreciate you coming on. So for those wondering where they can follow along to see like what you've got going on, maybe some updates or other things like that. Where's the best place they can find you? And uh, yeah. So um, I'm on Twitter and on Noster. You can just search for Excelion, E-X-C-E-L-L-I-O-N. And yeah, I'm, a, I'm online and available. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. So Samson, thanks so much for coming on. Everybody go follow him on Twitter. Follow Jan3 as well. Um, what, what's that handle? Is it just Jan3? It's uh, Jan3.com. Yeah, follow Jan3.com to see all the, the stuff that they got going on. So great stuff. And uh, yeah, Samson, th thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. It's been fun. All right, man, we are.